What we need is people to, to come together and say, look, this isn't working. And unfortunately, that usually leads to revolutions and major changes. But perhaps the sooner we can open everyone's eyes to say, look, this isn't working. What can we do to change it to a system that is better? And if enough people want that, it can be done in a very constructive and positive way. Does it mean we go to digital currencies or cryptos or anything? It doesn't mean any of that. It just right. means what we're doing now doesn't work. And it'll work for a while longer, but we need to start having that conversation before it leads to a global collapse and another big world war, because sadly, in history, that's exactly what always happens. Mr. Stephen Manmir, thanks so much for joining me on, on The Margin. Excited to have you here. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually excited in uh, more ways than one, because uh, obviously I'm excited to get your views on quantitative easing and deflation, which is what we're going to be talking about. But we're recording this on May 19th. And this is just a good excuse for me to stop looking at the price of Bitcoin, <laughs> which I admit, yeah, I've been doing quite a bit this morning. <laughs> I, I would agree. I think a lot of people uh, were not expecting Bitcoin to go down. And if they did, they were not expecting it to go down this much. So we'll be interested to see how this plays out uh, today and over the next couple of days for sure. Certainly, certainly will. I was uh, I was misled. I was told that it was up only. Uh, feeling very betrayed. Uh, I got to take this up with the CEO. So, <laughs> right. I know that it, is. It was, you know, I think what's interesting. This could be a symptom of you know the liquidity trap, the the dollar prison, the deflationary you know narrative. It, it could be manifesting itself in Bitcoin. First, I could be wrong. I don't know, and I think it's too early to call. But this this could be something to, to pay attention to. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. And with that, maybe let's get into what I actually wanted to, to talk to you about today, um, which is kind of your thoughts on QE and how that leads to kind of your, your going thesis, which is that we're heading for more deflation. Um, I actually love listening to your old interviews on this because it made me realize that I thought I understood quantitative easing. And turns out I definitely did not. Um, and I actually had some pretty fundamental misunderstandings of how the program is mechanically implemented and what its stated intentions are. So could you just actually give us kind of an overview of what quantitative easing is and what are its stated purposes? Yeah, so at, at its very basic level, and this is often misunderstood, quantitative easing is what's referred to as a reserve swap. And mm -hmm. so all the Fed is doing is taking an existing bank reserve from one of the large commercial banks, and those bank reserves will have a what's referred to as a duration. So what does that actually mean? We, we kind of have to dig into, you know, we'll, we'll come back to that. But all they're doing is taking this bank reserve that has a duration of somewhere maybe from uh, four weeks to seven years. And the Fed is swapping it and making an, an overnight duration. That's all they're doing. And, and now we're not supposed to understand that. We're not supposed to even be concerned about it. But that's what the process is. And it gets billed as money printing. It is absolutely in no way, shape or form money printing at all. Uh, it gets confused with, oh, the uh, Fed is buying directly from the primary dealers. No, they're not. They're buying at auction. No, they're not. It is simply a reserve swap. And the whole point of lowering the duration. So if you think about, I'm going to take, say, a two year treasury note that matures in two years that has. So there's your, if you look out how long the maturity and you can kind of pair a duration to that. I'm going to turn it into an overnight one, which means I'm going to give the banks an asset that matures every night, mm. which is cash in a sense. And this is kind of where it again, it gets confused with money printing, but it still is just a bank reserve. We're just shortening it, the duration down to an overnight level. Now that has two primary effects is what the Fed is attempting to do. Now you won't hear the Fed say this. 
So there's also some confusion. Why doesn't the Fed tell us what they're doing? Well, they don't, they don't want to. There's no need to. We're, we're just supposed to trust what the Fed is doing is going to work and not really question it because if it works, there's really no point in asking any questions. But there's two intended purposes. One is to lower interest rates. And that all depends on the size and scope of QE. So if the Fed is, for example, targeting uh, short-term uh, bank reserves, such as T-bills, well, they're going to try to lower short-term rates. If they're targeting the long end of the curve, such as you know seven-year uh, notes or longer, out to 30, they're going to try to lower the long end of the curve. And then it may be in the middle, five to, say, 10. So it just depends. Now, so the larger the QE purchases and the more broader it is, the idea is they're trying to lower rates across the curve. Mm. The second effect, which is really confusing, because I think the first part we we can agree that okay that kind of makes sense if the Fed is coming along and they're and, I, and the way I view it, Mike, is it's like I'm going to the store to buy maybe a can of tomato soup. They're very common, very popular, and there's usually lots of them when you go to the store. And all the Fed is doing is coming in and taking its arm and sweeping cans of soup every day into its cart and rolling them out. And so there's supply there, but it's disappearing. You can't buy it from the Fed. They're not, it's not available. So when you go to the store, there's less supply. Well, when there's less supply, the price should go up. And in the bond market, when prices go up, interest rates go down. Now, the second piece is far more confusing. The, the second intended effect is to increase the value of the dollar. And again, this is where we come back to, wait a minute, is this money printing or not? And the answer is it's not because these bank reserves that the Fed creates, they, they're kind of weird because first of all, even though the Fed is showing, crediting the bank in terms of on their balance sheet. So a large commercial bank will show these reserve assets on their balance sheet somewhere as theirs. They're actually, the reserve assets are held at a Federal Reserve member bank. So they're controlled by the Fed. So it would be as if I'm gonna give you something, but say, I'm gonna hold on to that. So here's a say can of soup. Oh, by the way, it's in my pantry. If you need it, you have to come over here. But actually, you can't you can't really do much with it. So it's it's kind of locked down into the Fed. Now that can of soup, from an accounting standpoint, could get moved inside the commercial banking system. The problem is there's not a lot of banks that participate in using these bank reserves. So what happens is the mobility of these reserve assets turn into molasses. And if you look at what creates inflation, there's two really drivers that we could talk about. One is you could create more money through, uh, while the Fed or the federal government can't print money, but this in theory, you could, there was a way to print money would be one of them. Uh, the, you could do it through creating a lot of new loans, which is the actual way money is created in our, in our monetary system. Again, we, we just to be clear to all the listeners, we cannot print money. The third way is to get money exchanging hands real fast. So the more or the more hands money can move through, you can get inflation. Well, if you take an asset such as a reserve asset, you, you lock it down and say, okay, this is only going to be held at the Fed. And we're going to say that, yes, the commercial banks can account for it and they can swap it in between each other. But because there's not many commercial banks that participate in using reserve assets, the mobility of those dollars is going to crash. And that's why we look at something called the velocity of money, the velocity of the M2 money stock. And what we notice is, wow, it's at really low levels, uh, perhaps at all time low levels. And what that is telling us is how many times a dollar is used in a transaction. 
And what it's telling us is they're not being used very much. They're not moving. Now, a lot of people said, well, that's just due to the pandemic. Well, soon enough, we'll find out that it's not just due to the pandemic. It's part of the design of quantitative easing. We, it needs to lower interest rates and strengthen the dollar. And it does this in this weird mechanical way that gets very confused as money printing. Yeah. So let's, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's begin with actually the mechanical yeah. aspect of this, right? So this is a reserve swap, which kind of has the net effect of reducing the duration of banks holding. How does that actually get implemented? What are the different assets that are kind of changing hands here? And who are the assets that kind of changing hands in between? Yeah, and that's a great question because I think the best place to start of this and you know, when I first heard, you know, there's a, there's a couple experts who've really dug into this, and then really what was key for me is there was a FOMC press conf, or no, it was a 60 minutes interview. You probably remember this, Mike, where Pal sure said, "I'm printing digital money," and everyone's like, "Ah, look, see," and it's like, "No, no, no, no." Well, at the next FOMC meeting, he didn't say anything about it, but one of the people in the Q and A follow up actually called him out on that, and he said, "Look, we're just changing the nature of the reserve." And so that really then drives the question is, what's a bank reserve? And how do they create it? And why are they created? What are banks doing here? Well, it's really, so let's, let's go to the very beginning. When people deposit money into the commercial banking system, so perhaps if you bank at your local credit union, they're not gonna, they do not participate in the commercial banking system, but we're talking about a large bank, the Wells Fargo's, Bank of America, Citibank's, JP Morgan, you deposit money there. And like other banks, they have to pay you interest on that. Now there's two ways banks can accomplish this. One, they can lend your money out and then they, they make, they profit on the spread and then they pay you interest. The other way they can do this is by taking your money and turning it into a bank reserve by buying a U.S. Treasury security. It could be a T-bill, a T-note, it's very rarely a bond. And what we do know from the U.S. Treasury is that banks typically buy anywhere from four week out to seven year maturity bills and notes. And they do that depending on the type of deposit. If it's a consumer deposit versus a commercial deposit, they have different, you know, they know about how long each deposit is going to be on the books. And the idea is that when I deposit money on the, at, at the commercial bank, the bank is going to quote unquote duration match that with you know the various mix of bills and notes that's what they're trying mm -hmm. to do so they actually take my money and buy treasury securities with it and mm -hmm. that creates a bank reserve and because the bank knows and we know this in a fractional reserve banking system that a lot of the money that's on deposit doesn't really go anywhere i mean if we can look at our own bank accounts and, and realize that yes i've got a savings account and it's got some money in it and boy i almost never touch that well the bank knows that too so at any given time, they need to keep so much liquid to handle all the transactions. But beyond that, they've got this money that's just sitting there that they've got to pay interest on. So they create bank reserves out of it. So what the Fed then does is says, okay, we're going to come along with this QE process and we're going to swap those reserves. Now, the key thing to understand here is that deposit is tied to the original bank reserve. Then that bank reserve gets swapped to a reserve asset. So really you see now a customer deposit tied to a reserve asset. So if you've wondered why the interest on your bank account is next to nothing, it's because the interest rate, which is called the IOER, interest on excess reserves, is 0.1%. So of course the banks are not gonna pay us any more than that because that's the rate on a reserve asset. So what you have is customer deposits, whether they're again, consumer or commercial, 
now tied to a reserve asset that sits at a Federal Reserve member bank that can only move around within the other commercial banks. And, and I'll, I'll, let me explain what that means and then I'll, I'll you know, see where, where you want to go next, Mike. Sure. So what that means is, you know, at every night, the commercial banks, they settle across their transactions. So, you know, for example, uh, Wells Fargo may owe uh, JP Morgan because money shifted from Wells to JP Morgan, you know, 100 million and JP Morgan may own B of A, you know, 50 million. So, so all this is netted out at the end of the day. Right. And rather than sending cash back and forth, they just swap reserves. And so it's real simple. So the banks have swap reserves back and forth, and that's how we know, you know how the system works. And because they can only swap reserves in this case, and reserves are limited to the large commercial banks, their mobility is severely limited. Mm, absolutely. So what, what about, like, you know, when you look up the definition of quantitative easing, you do see a lot of what you just described. It's a reserve swap. Uh, there's also, I mean, one of the other things that you can see if you listen to FOMC is that uh, the Fed is also buying other longer dated securities like mortgage-backed securities. Um, how does that kind of fit into the picture? And what, what is the Fed actually, you know, by the letter of the law, quote unquote, allowed uh, to purchase? What are the assets that they're actually allowed to swap in quantitative easing? And just treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities. So why, why are they buying mortgage-backed securities? For the same reason, to suppress interest rates. And you would think about if you're buying mortgage-backed securities, where you try and suppress rates at the long end of the curve, because what are the most two common forms of mortgages people get, a 15 and a 30-year? So, right. you know, a lot of people think, oh, the Fed's up to something. No, they're literally just taking this inventory off the market, accounting for it on their balance sheet. You say, hey, it's here, it exists, we still get paid the interest on it. Uh, it's, but it's right here, you can't touch it, you can't buy it from us, you can't short it, you can't sell it, it just sits here. And they do that again to lower interest rates. So it, again, it all depends on the size and the scope, but at 120 billion, um, well actually it's 120 and a half billion a month. Now you, you do have some s substantial power to eventually lower rates. And the reason I say eventually is because the market forces can be selling or shorting against the Fed, but given the Fed's ability to almost go indefinitely with this, and the market cannot you know, meet them you know, in that trek down the road. So mm. at some point, you will, and maybe we're starting to see that now where the teeth of QE are really starting to dig in. Yeah, 120 billion a month is just such a huge number. I feel like we've really become numb to the impact of high numbers. Uh, you know, I felt that I was watching one of my favorite documentaries of all time is uh, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is the, the documentary of Enron um, back in the day in that collapse. And if you think about Enron, what's still etched in most people's mind is this was corporate fraud on an unprecedented level, huge amounts of money lost. If you go back, Enron was, I think it was the 10th largest company in the US slash the world at that time. Its market cap, I don't think ever even reached $100 billion. And at the time that was stupendous money. But now you hear that, you know, yeah, that doesn't even seem like it's that much. <laughs> right, you know? and I think that people will be surprised when they have to increase that amount. It would not shock me to see us running at some point a trillion dollars a month uh, when the deflationary forces come back and the Fed can't stop them because what's odd is the Fed doesn't actually realize the QE is deflationary. I mean, that it's just, it's almost baffling. And then we call it quantitative easing. And that's even weirder because it doesn't make any sense because the only way it actually eases is that it tightens financial conditions so much. And what do I mean by that is if lower interest rates lead to tighter financial conditions, a stronger dollar leads to tighter financial conditions. And what eases it? Well, the creation of new money. 
Well, as we discussed before, the federal government can't print money, the Fed can't print money, so how does money get created? Well, it gets created when, when consumers and businesses borrow, when a new right. loan is originated. So it's really odd that I, I always say that quantitative easing tightens financial conditions until it eases. But the first effect is that it tightens, and that's dangerous because if you tighten financial conditions in a weak economy, you can actually blow it up. And that's what I actually expect the Fed's going to end up doing. So it seems like one of the something that everyone wants, right, is for money creation. And the primary channel that money gets created is exactly what you just said, through commercial banks extending loans. For whatever reason, that isn't happening. So why is there, why aren't commercial banks lending more? And does that have anything to do with what we were just talking about in quantitative easing? Well, so yeah, why aren't banks lending more is be, because they look at the broad economy and you know, it, when you lend money out, there's really one concern you have, one and one only is, am I gonna get my money back? Anyone who's lent money to a friend or family member that never got it back, they're nodding their head going, yeah, no, I understand that. And banks feel that way too. They want their money back. And so they're looking at the economy, they're looking at our bank accounts, they're looking at our incomes, they're looking at our debt, and they're asking themselves, can I get my money back? Because when you're in a really low interest rate market, you know, where you're lending out money, say at 3%, and you know you're gonna get some defaults, your margin for error is little. So you, you, you've, you've really got a small margin error because you need so many good borrowers to offset the potential of a few defaults. But if you're running rates at like seven or 10%, well, then defaults don't really, I know a banker would say, yeah, they're really bad, but you've got a heck of a lot more margin if people default. So banks have no margin for error. They can't absorb a lot of defaults. And so they have to be very particular about who they lend to. And as a result, they only want to lend to their most creditworthy customers who either have lots of assets or lots of income or some, you know, some history of showing that, yes, I can make these payments because they're just afraid and you can't blame them. If I was in their position, I wouldn't be excited about lending either. And so, which is odd, the Fed says we need to lower rates to spur credit creation, which is an absolute fact. You know, people borrow more when rates fall, not when rates rise. But the problem for banks is, on the other side, is low rates aren't really healthy for a bank. Right. I mean, how much of this, do you think this is true that, you know, the economy's been struggling for a period of time. We have thus far relied on kind of the monetary channel, right, to ease pressure on the economy. If you look at the primary tool that the Fed has to enact monetary policy, it's the setting of the Fed funds rate, right? Um, and it seems like there's kind of a bell curve, right, in terms of, it, it's not always just, hey, lower interest rates equals more lending. There's a parabola because at some point, right, you keep interest rates low enough, you set the hurdle rate for investment at such a low point that there's just misalloca misallocation of capital at a really wide level and it makes nobody want to lend, right? And at the same time, you're reducing the margin that the lenders have essentially on their lending product. It just doesn't make sense. You're absolutely right. It does lead to misallocation of capital. I, I think we talked about in our, our last time we, we uh, were together that if interest rates were higher, you wouldn't see kind of just the wasteful spending of, say, borrowed money on corporate share buybacks because it wouldn't make sense. The, there's a secondary problem to this. You know, perpetually lowering interest rates are going to lead to inflation because it's almost as if the Fed doesn't understand that we're in a debt-based economy and the way it grows is as debt expands and the way you get inflation as debt expands. And you know, we, we just talked about how money is created. It's created when people borrow money, but we didn't talk about the opposite effect because for every reaction, we're gonna have an equal and opposite reaction is money's destroyed 
as people make a principal payment on their loan. So whether it's part of your regular, you know, interest in principal payment or just a one-time payment that you're making to the principal, money's destroyed. So there's really what I kind of refer to as the curse of ZERP or zero interest rate policy is you, you perpetually lower rates to spur credit creation. But the problem is as rates get lower and lower and more debt is at lower rates, as it's being paid off, it's very deflationary because it's just rapidly destroying money. And kind of I'll play off your parabola, parabola comment is you almost need uh, lending growth to go, you know, just infinite because at some point you have all this 0%, maybe even at some point negative rate money that's just, just destroying every month as people make payments. Well, you just need a monstrous amount of new money to be created to offset that. Well, when it's at 0%, then its destruction comes real quickly. So you need even more. And the problem is there just isn't that much demand. So all the Fed's doing here is pulling what's called aggregate demand for. They're trying to get us to buy things today that we were going to wait and buy tomorrow. And at some point you tap people out. I mean, you know, you start really thinking about where this goes. I mean, you know, if, if the average person say buys a home and moves every seven years, well, now we have to get them to go every five and then every three, then every one and then every six months. And the next thing you know, I have to hire someone to buy me a home every hour to create enough credit. And then that's not gonna work. So I have to write a computer program to go down and buy a house every minute and a car every second, and then a, a new credit transaction. And the next thing you know, I literally have computer algorithms financing things as fast as possible to infinity because the system just needs this perpetual amount of money growth. But at zero rates, you also get this rapid destruction of money. And that's why we see, you know, when we look like at all these other countries that have been at zero policies, is a reason it doesn't work is because there just isn't enough demand that you can pull forward to create enough credit growth. Yeah. So I, I absolutely agree with you in terms of just the problem statement there. It looks like what we're finally starting to see, you know, here Biden kind of talking about these infrastructure policies is we're seeing the awaken of the fiscal policy channel, right? Most of most money supply creation, broad money, not base money, broad money supply creation is supposed to happen through the commercial banking system in you know, past times, you can kind of look back at the, the 40s or whatever and look, actually, there's another channel, which is fiscal policy, right, and direct government spending. Um, what are your thoughts on just how infrastructure spending, continued fiscal spending impacts everything that we're talking about here? Well, I think the question is, is fiscal inflationary? Is fiscal creating money? And it isn't. So when you when the government borrows money to do fiscal stimulus, they're still borrowing money. So there's a reason it doesn't become inflationary. We can go back uh, to Obama and we can look uh, at his fiscal package and we can look at the Trump administration. We can you know, predict what the Biden administration's infrastructure bill, if passed, is going to be. And again, I don't know. I'll assume they'll get something. Uh, but there's a reason it isn't. But if we go back far enough in time, when a country is running a surplus, so you now you're taking tax revenue and then you're turning to fiscal, that, that, that can actually be inflationary because it's not borrowed money. And that therein lies the problem is we're just borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And a lot of the money is coming from overseas sources because we, as the world's reserve currency, dollars you know, circulate all around the world. So now that we're buying, borrowing from domestic holders of dollars, we're buying a lot of dollars from foreign holders. Well, in order to keep the global economy you know, cycling, those dollars that the government's borrowing need to be spent out into the U.S. economy, out into the world economy. A lot of people complain, like, why are we spending money, you know, you know, building a school in some other country? Well, we've got to we got to put those dollars back. I mean, they, they need to be inflationary. They need to get out in this global system to work. But we also need the American consumer and businesses, corporations to go out 
and take and borrow money and spend it on foreign produced goods and services. And, and you start to really understand is why are we outsourcing all of these jobs? Why is all this stuff keep moving overseas? It's because we've got to take these dollars in the US. Our job as a world's reserve currency is to export inflation. What that means is our real export is dollars. And we've got to get that out. So how do we get dollars out? Well, we move factories overseas. We move jobs overseas, call centers overseas. We get people to travel overseas. And how do you do this? Two easy ways to do it. Create a strong dollar, not too strong, not too weak, but just, just right and lower interest rates. And next thing you know, people are borrowing money. They're going on a European vacation. They're buying that foreign car. They're, you know, they're saying, wow, I can buy that, you know, other goods or service from overseas for a fraction of the price. And that's how the system works is we export dollars. So you start to look at the fundamental problems of zero interest rate policy and outsourcing jobs. And you, and you very, you, you kind of really figure out that this can't go on forever, but they're going to try. I mean, they're going to make every effort to do it. It's a really interesting idea of exporting inflation is so you're saying, cause my, my thought process, right. For looking at the relationship between just, just the dollar being at the center of the global reserve currency is we're essentially suffering from some form of financial Dutch disease, right? Where there's, there's so much global demand for dollars that we essentially have the obligation and we need to export those dollars to other countries so that they can use them. That's great. If you were involved in the quote unquote exportation of dollars business, right? If you're in the banking system, that sucks. If you have products that you manufacture in the United States and you would actually benefit from a weaker dollar. So is all of this, is that, I guess, is a stronger dollar or the decision to have a stronger dollar a necessity just structurally from the way that system is set up? Or is it a much more intentional policy decision uh, from folks based in the United States? Yeah, great question. It's an absolute necessity because, you know, if you're in a foreign country and you're having to, you know, buy, say, crude oil with dollars, and all of a sudden the dollar is losing value. Well, your faith in using it and wanting to transact, it, it's also going to go with it. So the dollar needs to be strong, but like I said, but not too strong, and it needs to be stable. I mean, that is the whole mm -hmm. point of a reserve currency of, of what it needs to do. And so that's why, you know, it's kind of interesting when all these people say, we're printing money, we're printing money. It's like, well, no, we're not. And if you really want to destroy a reserve currency, that's one great way to do it because no one would want to touch it. And so the United States has had this absolute, you know, huge economic benefit of the reserve currency, um, you know, since we had it in the 40s. I mean, you look at the economic growth and the prosperity and the wealth of this nation compared to the rest of the world. Well, it's really tied back to one thing that the dollar being the reserve. And so in every sense of the word, the Fed wants to make sure the dollar stays that way. They, that's who they're beholden to. And so they're going to do everything they can. One of the problems with this entire system is neither the Fed nor and to the, some extent the federal government can't control where their, you know, these dollars are going. So, you know, when, when the government spends money, they load them into their dollar cannon and, you know, shoot it out into the economy. You know, it, it's kind of like saying, you know, we really need to get some dollars over here, but we, we can't promise they're going to get there. We, we shoot them out and just kind of hope for the best. And, so the system really has a lot of flaws, um, but the Fed will do everything it can to protect its position as a reserve currency uh, for as long as it can. Now, maybe the system will just fail because, you know, we, we can, you know, look through history, Mike, I know you're a student of history, and we know that reserve currencies will eventually fail and then the right. dollar will be no different. Question is, will we be able to get it back in some different form? I guarantee you we'll fight for it. But yeah, the, the entire system is heavily flawed and that's what brings you to these boom and bust cycles and you know 
once you know how the Fed is going to react and you start to understand that you know, quantitative easing, oddly enough, tightens financial conditions until you get lending growth. And then you go look and say, well, we're not getting lending growth. So the longer the Fed plays this out, they're literally going to suck all these dollars out of the global economy, courtesy also of borrowing money and you know using it to direct consumer stimulus, which now is showing up. You know, so we're getting $4, if you think about it, routed into the commercial banking system where the Fed's locking them down. They're going to crash the whole global economy. And, but I guarantee you, after they do that, they'll get inflation, but that's not their intent, but that's, you know, as we know through history, that's exactly what will happen. Yeah. You know, it's funny to hear you describe, because I, I agree, there, there are real serious benefits that have accrued, accrued to the U.S. being the issuer of the global reserve currency, right? There's obviously kind of political power in the form of sanctions. There's also access to cheap credit, right, and debt from international uh, lenders, essentially. But, you know, for me, I guess what's important to note is that those benefits have not accrued um, in an even way in the United States. And if you were to look at what are attack vectors or vectors of weakness in the United States overall, I'd say inequality is right there at the top of the list, right? You mentioned being a student of history. Yes, reserve currencies tend to fail. Also, empires tend to fail, or there's huge social unrest uh, whenever there are periods of intense income inequality. And if you look at our foes or competitors or enemies you know abroad what is the vector that we are currently being attacked by via russia china inequality right and dissension spread via social media not to put my tinfoil hat on but that's clearly the vector that we're being attacked on right now yeah. so it kind of shows you some inherent weaknesses in the system well, right and once you understand the system it makes perfect sense because you know why are we why are we exporting all of these jobs overseas i mean right you, i mean we hear about this in the news you know labor unions you know they're just desperate and fighting to keep factories. And the next thing you know, companies like, yeah, this is moving to Mexico or Canada or somewhere else. Because when you're the global reserve currency, you're actually competing on a global scale. Now, if we go back far enough in history, the United States didn't have to compete with jobs from people outside the country. That wasn't really a big problem. But when you're the reserve currency and you're trying to, and you need to export dollars, suddenly you are competing. So the problem for American workers are, is they're competing with low cost labor out of Asia, you know, China and other countries around there. We are directly competing with them. You know, I know people in the import export business. I know people have opened factories in China and they say, look, that is the biggest competition. And there are some ways to bring factories back to the U S but they're going to be highly automated. So you look at, you know, from a business perspective, if I had, you know, if my business had a call center, I could have it in the U S I could pay U S wages, I have to follow U.S. regulations, or I could outsource it to India at a fraction of the price. Mm. And maybe the quality isn't as good. Maybe there's a lag because there's, you know, but telecommunications is pretty good. But overall, is it going to really damage my business? No, because I'm saving a ton of money and I can pass that savings potentially either on to my customer or to my shareholders. And the shareholders probably don't care if someone sits on hold for a few minutes or doesn't get the right service because, eh, well, we're still, you know, competitive against our everyone else and we can still sell more products to make up for that loss. So, you know, Americans don't realize that this is the reason we are really seeing a lot of these lower wage jobs and, and we're starting to see mid-level jobs go away or skilled and skilled jobs from the factory sector, manufacturing sector is because of the world's reserve currency. In theory, we need to export every possible function that we do to get dollars into the global economy where they really become inflationary. I mean, if we really were to look at the 
the foreign dollar system or the years called the euro dollar market you see that's where most of the dollars are created so we need to get them out there well any way possible and but that's the problem is you you do create a lot of inequality and you create some very wealthy people as we've seen but you create a lot more poor people and that's not going to change unfortunately it's only going to get worse and then you think about well why don't we just bring those jobs back well then uh, you can't stay a reserve currency forever because you've got to get dollars back overseas and so it, it gets really challenging the longer you run this yeah it absolutely does you know, I, we had Mike Green on here a couple weeks ago, and we were actually talking about this interview that James Gold, uh, Sir James Goldsmith did. Uh, he uh, went on Charlie Rose in like 1994, and he essentially outlined this exact problem that we're talking about today. Um, and it's funny because that, that has kind of ran countered the narrative uh, for the past you know, 30 years or, or however long has been, hey, global free trade is good for everyone, and if you don't accept that, maybe there's some xenophobia or something underneath that. And... That has just been, I think that narrative is now being demonstrably proven false, right? Uh, and it's just crazy to hear this guy get up there and explain very clearly, right? Like, these are the decisions that businesses are going to have to make. They're going to be faced with the option of being able to source labor on a global scale. It's going to be one-fifth the cost in another country. They are going to make that decision 10 times out of 10. And it's funny because in that exact interview, you hear him arguing with this woman who I'm sure is very well-intentioned, but the argument that she's making is that decreasing trade barriers across different countries is actually going to lead to more exports from the United States. And you're sitting there now with the benefit of hindsight being like, oh my God, you could not be more wrong in this. But yeah, it's just a crazy, it's a crazy thing to watch. Um, I highly recommend everyone go, go check it out. Um, I, I guess one question for you is, do you think that post-pandemic there will be legitimate market forces, uh, not just the political sector that actually bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States, um, you know, outside of just, hey, this is the right thing to do for our country, because people are going to say, hey, for whatever security reasons, X, Y, Z, we can't be manufacturing all of this stuff over in China. Or, yeah, do you, do you think there are real market forces that actually might bring some of those jobs back? Yeah, I, I want to comment on that interview first, because not a lot of people know about that. And I actually have seen it. And I actually, I don't know if you've read the, there's a little book uh, he wrote. I don't know if you've seen that before. I haven't, no. I'll have to send it to you. It's in PDF form. But it really outlines, you're right, he kind of outlines, look, this is all great uh, until it's not, and this is a way to fix it. So it, yeah. it's kind of interesting that that you, you're familiar with that because very few people know that you know there's something called a border adjustment tax, which could feasibly work. We haven't done it. Uh, I think it would be interesting to try. Um, and, you know, because effectively, what does the United States... In theory, what are we trying to do? We're trying to raise the standard of the, of the world up to us. But what is the actual fact happening? Is the United States' standard is being lowered to the rest of the world. And it's very obvious that's happening. Uh, what do I think is going to happen in the manufacturing sector? Sure, I think there will be some pressure to bring. I mean, it, it, we're, we saw that under the, uh, the Trump administration. We're going to see that under the Biden administration. We'll see that under whomever the, you know, the future administrations are. There's always going to be pressure to bring factories back because it creates jobs and they create good paying jobs you know with benefits that are above you know obviously minimum wage and so that, that there's going to be demand for that well i think what we're really seeing is 
you know, we had this kind of just-in-time manufacturing where it was very lean there in manufacturers just didn't have a lot of supply so you know I, and I don't know I don't work in the manufacturing sector and never have to say how how many days or weeks of supply I think what we're going to start seeing now is manufacturers are going to have a little bit longer supply chains to deal with this disruption uh, you can't always count on the government to bail you out and I think going forward you know, they probably know that's uh, true to some standpoint um, but will we see factories come back here? Um, you know, I, I, again, I know that Mike, there's pressure to do that. It's only gonna be a question of how much automation you can cram into a factory to build a good or service. And of course the challenge with that is that doesn't create jobs either. I mean, it creates jobs, but now you think about maybe you have a factory in China that employs, you know, say a couple hundred people and you create a highly automated, highly efficient factory in the US to compete with them maybe 10 people work there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how efficient it gets, but you know, the, the problem is we keep solving this problem with more technology and more technology keeps displacing jobs. And it, it just gets to be a challenge. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but I, I, I don't know that we'll see too many factories come back here. Mm -hmm. Maybe there'll be more supply, you know, uh, warehouses that, 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 that hold inventory, but I don't know how many factories will actually come back. At least I haven't seen a lot of companies talking about it. Maybe you have, but I, I haven't yet. Well, so I actually have a prediction for you because I actually did used to work as a consultant in supply chain. And it actually always, there's a, there's a, um, there's like one of those famous like triangle things in supply chain. There are three main important factors to consider. It's cost, quality, and lead time. And basically you can pick two. And mm -hmm. for a long period of time, people have sacrificed lead time essentially by using factories and stuff based out of, it's not even mostly China now, it's like Vietnam and other areas. Right. Um, the problem is you have a huge lead time if you're sourcing from those uh, parts of the world. And the lead time on a supply chain is directly related to the amount of stock that you need to hold in your inventory. It, if you think about it, it, what you're trying to do from an inventory standpoint is make it so that you are never running out of, uh, stocking out of a particular item. If the lead time is one day, you know, I don't need to hold that much actually because I can respond really quickly. I can get more stuff here in a day. If your lead time is half a year, which sometimes it is, you need to hold a lot more because you need to be like, well, if I ever need to order more, it's going to take half a year to get here basically. So it's actually always puzzled me why there are some industries, especially where like a short production time, like a short production cycle, like fashion, why more of that doesn't happen based out of the United States, because that's a real competitive advantage. You don't need to hold as much in stock. You can respond more quickly to fashion trends. Inventory goes obsolete very quickly. I never get to talk about this. I know this was from a past life, so I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're, we're not well, jumping here. But, but it comes back to wages, right? If you're paying someone two to three times more, right. then you go, well, forget it. I'll, I'll just import it and yeah, it'll be a little late, but you know, uh, that's why we got an advertising department. So we'll, we'll plan the next trend, but it'll be delayed a little bit and then we'll let them promote it. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, well, I know you're right because you've obviously worked in the industry, but I think now the challenge is, you know, if you have a, say a three month or six month lead, they're going to be ordering extra, which is maybe what we're seeing now in the factory data is, is uh, companies ordering more supply to start building up their inventory. Of course, yeah. my, my concern is without fiscal stimulus, with the economy rolling over, with the deflationary forces of QE, is we're going to go from a shortage of inventory to an excess of inventory pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what are your thoughts on the latest kind of CPI prints? And it looks like we're temporarily above uh, the Fed's target levels. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, and that's not wasn't really a surprise. I mean, the Fed was warning us if we go if you go back and look at the base effects. I mean, it, and what do I mean by the base effects? Is where did the CPI print a year ago? Yeah, you you could easily predict that we were going to go over their target. Uh, but the Fed's made it pretty clear that the average. Hey, we have to hit an average, and averages aren't established in one or two or even three months. Um, it's possible by May we'll see it uh, trend lower by June. Uh, we for certainly will. Uh, and you know, when you start looking at the, the negative effects of, or deflationary effects of QE, we, we can absolutely predict that this is going to revert the other direction. The only question right now is when. It's not an if, it is a when event. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I wasn't really worried about it too much. The market yeah. made a lot of a big noise about it, but it's, it's going to roll over faster than people realize. So just to kind of sum up what we're talking about here before, QE, you see, is an inherently deflationary program because really two main impacts that it has, which is one, um, lowering interest rates, and two, strengthening the dollar. Um, what would make you change your mind? Like, what would, what would the factors be that if, you know, A, B, or C happened, I'd say, oh, maybe now we're headed uh, towards a more deflationary, secularly inflationary environment? Well, you'd have to get a lot of lending growth. Yeah. And then, and, and so some people, like, even the Fed says, okay, well, you know, when jobs come back, we'll get inflation. And I like to quickly point is, we allegedly, and I only say allegedly because I suspect that the government is able to actually determine the unemployment rate. Uh, we had a, a, you know, a low unemployment rate going into the pandemic. I mean, or technically we're at full employment by their metrics, by the Fed's metrics. So why didn't we have inflation there? Because we had disinflation. Again, mm -hmm. it's this curse of ZERP. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work. The glo and the global economy was slowing down. And so what would I need to see now? I need to see a substantial amount of lending growth. I would like to see people going back to work. While that doesn't directly lead to inflation, it leads to demand. But my, my overall concern is we pulled so much demand forward with people buying homes, buying cars, buying electronics and all this stuff for their stimulus checks. The question is what is left? And particularly when, as we know, like student loan payments are going to start restarting in September, the extended unemployment uh, benefits, depending on whichever state standard will go away in September. I know it's, you know, there's people that are still not paying on their mortgage or their rents. That's going to change. And so all of a sudden, there, the people that were able to spend this excess money on discretionary goods and services are now going to have to spend it on things they need, you know, right. shelter. And then you factor, you know, gas prices are up, energy prices are up. Well, that sucks away money. Food prices are up, that sucks away money. So you start thinking, how do you get def inflation? Is you need a lot of money, you, money created through the, the banking system, and you need to spend on discretionary goods and services. It's just hard for me to see that happening, particularly with, you know, as we look at the baby boomers heading into retirement, and perhaps for some of them forced into retirement sooner than later. And then you look at the millennials, unfortunately, on the other side. You know, when, when the boomers came into the economy, they were relatively debt free and they had a lot of runway to, you know, to expand and create inflation because there just wasn't an economy right. that was ready to handle their consumption. Well, uh, millennials, again, unfortunately, they have a lot of debt and they're coming into an economy where prices are high. You know, it's, it's hard for them to buy homes, hard for them to buy cars, hard for them to buy stuff because everything's so expensive in their wages. You know, if you look at a millennial, the average millennial's wage compared to the boomer and, and just for inflation as a enter the economy, it's actually less. So they're really, you know, from a, a consumption standpoint, they're at a disadvantage. You know, every millennial out there should not be rooting for inflation. They should be rooting for massive deflation. They want to see asset prices crash. They want to see these boomers forced into retirement. 
Because what do they want to do? They want to get those higher paying jobs, you know, those management jobs, those executive jobs, and they want to be able to buy a home. It's cheap. I mean, that's what they want. But it seems like everyone's cheering for inflation when, you know, sometimes the best way to create wealth is a deflationary shock, especially if you've got cash assets or, you know, assets readily convertible to cash where you can take advantage of these low prices. And, you know, but everyone kind of seems to want the opposite thing. But in the end, I think we'll see deflation. Uh, those forces are coming back a lot sooner than people think. And, you know, uh, the Fed's out of juice. And from a fiscal standpoint, you know, look at the Biden administration. I mean, they're, you know, I know they're trying to work on an infrastructure bill, but as Mike, as you and I talked about already, that's not going to be inflationary. And then you got the midterms coming up and you've got a very, you know, nearly split, you know, House and Senate. It makes it very difficult to pass things. So, you know, it's not going to be easy. You know, everyone thinks, oh, they'll just pass another stimulus bill and give people money. I don't think that it's that easy at this point. You have to have things get really bad. And then there's going to be a lot of infighting first. And then maybe we'll see something. But by then it'll be, you know, the deflationary forces of QE will be so deep. Uh, it'll, it's, it'll be hard to come out of. So, you know, it's funny. When, when you look at the actions that the Fed is doing, my interpretation of what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to grow their way out of the problem of debt. That's what it seems like to me. Um, and obviously, like a best case situation would be there's kind of the good kind of inflation and the bad kind of inflation. And the good kind of inflation uh, is things are growing. You know, things are growing. There's like real productive growth in the economy. You see uh, wage uh, power go up because, hey, companies are growing so fast. I really need to get people in the door. Okay, I'll pay you a little more. It doesn't matter. Just when can you start? You know, that's the good kind of inflation, right? Um, and then it doesn't seem like we're getting that. So then there's kind of the bad kind of inflation. And that's when you adjust the denominator and start printing. And, you know, one thing that I think about, you know, we haven't talked, I don't even know your opinion on like central bank digital currencies, but for me, that might be the last tool in the toolkit to actually get to the really bad kind of inflation, right? Because if you look at a guy like Lacey Hunt, who has correctly predicted deflation for the past, uh, you know, 40 or so years, called the bond bull market, the last bastion, right, that's standing in between the shift from deflation to inflation is when the legal tender of central banks become, uh, or sorry, the liabilities of central banks become real legal tender. It seems to me, looking at central bank digital currencies, that that could be a real possibility and a way to just circumvent the commercial banking system. Well, I think that there's a different way to look at it is not, I mean, I don't, I, I understand that as an in-game scenario. I don't think it's a probability at this stage. I think we can look toward China recently, who did roll out a digital currency. I'm sure you saw this, Mike, and they yep. put it through a trial, and it had one really interesting feature in it. And it wasn't that it was digital, because you know I, I don't carry cash. If someone wants to mug me, I'd be like, well, <laughs> you're gonna be really disappointed because I only got some credit cards, but I have no cash. I don't even have you know people have coins in their cars when they go places. I don't even have that. I have nothing. I, I'm, I'm don't waste your time coming after me. Um, so I I view that I transact my life. In digital currency now but what would what would change if we had no paper currency where the the powers that be could put some influence on it well one thing you could do is you could make money expire expire and that's i i think that becomes the next step i think china was pilot testing that it hasn't gone over well but that and you and you think about it, okay i'm going to give someone you know we will just go down the, the the mmt route so to speak and instead of conjuring money out of thin air, we're going to borrow money and give it to people. So I'm going to give somebody $400 a month, but someone might save that. So how do I fix that? 
Well, in when I deposit into their account, and maybe it's a separate account, you know, a special account, and it says money is deposited, and this can only be spent out of it, cannot be saved or transferred. But after the first week is up, 50% of it's gone. And then the second week, 25% of it's gone. And then at the end of the fourth week, it's all gone. Hmm. Well, you can't save it. And while that may be a solution, it may be something we try. Anyone listening to this, you should not want that. You don't want that because that is something that will lead to the destruction of the empire. When people realize they have no control over anything, when anything you want, you must borrow to get and whatever money you do have has a clock on it. Yeah, I mean, maybe it sounds great that, oh yeah, I'll get some money every month. Someone is entirely in charge of what you do with that. Doesn't seem that way, but it will be. And that, that's a path I hope we don't go down, at least not in my life, but um, I have a hunch that that probably will be the next step, um, I mean, because converting the liabilities of Fed to legal tender uh, will not just turn into hyperinflation, it'll destroy the global economy, probably lead to a world war. Not something you really want to do until you've exhausted yeah. all their aspects. And perhaps one of them is a, you know, a currency that expires, or perhaps we just kind of, the system gets regenerated into a new form of digital currency that is effectively the same thing, but we call it something different and everyone thinks it's better, but it turns out it's not. I mean, I, I fully expect that to happen, but yeah, I, I don't know this digital currency thing. I, I don't like, I, I don't like you. where it can go at all. I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's, it, it's, it scares me a little bit because there are some really smart people out there who are basically saying like it or not, this is coming. And I, I just, I see all downside to be completely honest with you. I, I don't really see the upside actually almost at all, because just like you, it's, it's almost a little funny when people say, oh, it's a central bank digital currency. You know, status quo, right? Like 96% of currency, 93% of currency is already digital. So what's the real difference there? The real difference is who's your counterparty and your counterparty you know, transfers from being a, a commercial bank, which is giving you an IOU directly to the Federal Reserve. And I just think that's centralizing too much power with one entity. And yeah, I just worry about it. I, I kind of well, worry about it as well. The scary part is there will be a demand for it because as you met, you know, talk, we talked about earlier, you talked about the, the wealth divide. Right. So the, as that continues to get worse and worse, there'll be a lot of people that say, look, you owe me. So you rich people built, you know, billionaires and maybe trillionaires at some point here in the future, you know, I'm, I'm living in a tent. So give me the money so I can survive. And the more people you get like that, that, you know, because the system is, is wronging them. And I don't mean to, I don't want to suggest that their people are choosing that lifestyle because I don't think people choose to do that. I think the system puts people there is there will be a demand for that and you get enough demand for that you put people in office that will will enact laws to do that thinking that it will make things better and for a while it will because perhaps some people that you know struggle to feed themselves can maybe some people can get out of that situation and, and better themselves because you know or, or give their children a better life to change the mold and something perhaps something does get better but when you have that much power over consumption from a government level people will eventually realize that it's really bad and that the system as designed, the, the debt-based system that we live in was designed to do exactly what it's doing now, as is a world reserve currency. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. The problem is it, it doesn't work. It doesn't create a quality. It was, and it's never intended to, but you know, we'll, we'll continue to run this thing down until the bitter end 
what, what we get out of that will be interesting to see. I just, I don't know, I just, I'm not excited about it because I'm sure it means I'm going to be losing a lot of things or you're going to be losing a lot of things. And um, at first it'll seem okay, but it, in the end it won't be. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And actually, you know, if you look through history, you know, Ray Dalio has done a lot of work on this. This is not a unique situation. This has happened literally tens or hundreds of times, essentially where, you know, you describe, you know, you mentioned the word boom bust. Boom bust is just, that's just a reflection of human psychology, right? We overshoot and overcompensate and then there, there is a correction. And, you know, the framework that, that Dalio has, and he's got, I actually have it, you know, in this bookshelf behind me to make myself look, uh, look smart there, but I uh, haven't, haven't actually gotten, to reading, gotten around to reading it yet. But, uh, you know, basically, you know, he's, he's done these case studies of, I think there are like 50 different case studies in that book of basically history overextending itself, getting too much debt, uh, like over leveraging itself, the wealth gap intensifies, and then there's some basically big redistribution. Do you think we're eventually headed towards a redistribution? If so, what do you think that looks like? Oh yeah, and you can see that with the wealthy of this country they absolutely are feel uh, are afraid of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I kind of remember as a kid, I, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, and it was cool to say, hey, I'm rich. Look at my car. Look at, I mean, of course, not many people had planes by then, but whatever it is, look at what, look at my wealth, you know, the lifestyle I lead, you know, uh, I mean, as a kid, and I know some people aren't big fans of Donald Trump, but you, you kind of look at him and, and his persona during the, uh, the 80s and 90s of, I'm successful. Look at this. I got these buildings and I've got these women and cars and this lifestyle I lead. Mm -hmm. That was okay. You, you could flaunt your success. And people looked up and said, hey, I want to be rich too. You know, how can I use the system and, and better myself to create wealth? Today, you don't see that as much. You see a lot of downplaying of that where a lot of wealthy are buying properties outside this country and other places and they're trying to hide things because they don't want people to know they're rich, but people know they're already, we already know they're rich. So yeah, I think there is some fear of that because, you know, when, when the masses overthrow the few, well, they're going to be after one thing and that's money. And, you know, we've seen that throughout history that, you know, that you start looking back, like, why was the guillotine invented? Well, it was to remove heads from Kings. You know I mean? Look, that was, it seemed like a good job, but there's days it was really bad. And that, and that happens when you don't get, you know, we can't create equality. The problem is the system doesn't do it. The only question is what do we get next? And, and what is the process to that? But you're right. There's no doubt there's going to be some redistribution event and people are afraid of it. And maybe that's why uh, we've seen this, you know, popularity in cryptocurrency because you know, perhaps there's this view that, hey, I can put some money in that and it's outside the system. Maybe it'll stay that way, maybe not. Maybe, I mean, you know, governments have a lot of power to tax things and take things away. You know, we just found out recently that, you know, if you owe the government, well, they can seize your cryptocurrency. So, you know, I think people are looking for ways to do that, to hang on to what they've got. But uh, in, in a highly technological world, that's hard to do. I mean, you can't just go bury your gold bar somewhere out in the desert that only you know, you know. <laughs> if, we're, if we have no paper currency, you can't hide and you can't run. Because if you did run, bah, by the time you get wherever you're going, your money's gone. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Thinking? On, on kind of Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, but but who knows? Who knows how all this, I mean, you could also shut down servers. So maybe they can't regulate it, but maybe you, know, you shut down a bunch of servers and, you know, next thing you know, that's gone. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't, I think the government has a lot more power and a lot more knowledge over their life than they realize. And I think global governments, because you look around the world, everyone's running the same, vari a variation of the same exact step-based system. 
Yeah. And the whole idea is that, that we're going to go to a global system that's equal. All the people in power don't want that. All the rich people don't want that. There's a reason they're in power and there's a reason they're rich because the system got them there. And that's what's weird about the world is once you get to that position, you don't want to give it up. Hmm. So I you're going to do everything you can to, to keep the system that, that got you there, there. And if you're a big, rich tech CEO, for example, that maybe had control over a bunch of cryptocurrencies and the government calls you up and says, by the way, you're going to you're going to shut all those machines down. You say, no, I'm not. And he'll say, well, uh, why don't you look at your bank? Log into your look at your bank account right now. Why? You don't have anything. anymore. you're not a billionaire anymore. You're a zillionaire, zero millionaire. You have nothing. Oh. Oh, by the way, see those cars pulling up outside your house? Yeah, that's the Fed. We're going to put you in jail. Until you until you do what we say, and people will do that. They they will bow, because money and power, we know through history, they will. So yeah, I, I don't trust the system at all. Um, I think we have to play the game the best we can play, and hope for whatever reason it doesn't get as bad as you and I are discussing right now. But I fear we're going to go down some paths that the the history books will show led to some significant changes in the empires, the world empires. I, yeah, I agree. I actually think, you know, it, it never seems uh, probable at the time, but weirdly, you know, you're, if you bet on the status quo, right, things not changing, great shifts in power, empires rising and falling, you're actually betting against, you know, one of the most consistent trends ever throughout all of human history, right? And, and I, I would actually end on, you know, a slightly more optimistic note and say, you know, when it comes to crypto and even what you just described, you're essentially describing the potential for disruption against the most incumbents, right? This is a disruption versus incumbents kind of paradigm. I will admit these are incumbents that are extremely powerful, extremely entrenched. Uh, but I do think over long periods of time, you know, when a better system is proposed, those things tend to win out over long periods of time. And by the way, I'm not saying it's going to be a nice and easy transition. I'm not even advocating necessarily for the fact that something like Bitcoin becomes the next global reserve currency. I'm just, you know, we operate a company that, you know, is deeply involved in this space. And you know what I was describing to you that like kind of good kind of inflation right now, that's happening, at least in this industry. I know it goes through these crazy boom bust cycles, but it really feels like there's some really promising opportunity for just growth and innovation and all that kind of stuff. So we just talked about some, I wanted to, you know, I know we're drawing towards the close of our time here. I did want to end on like a slightly optimistic note because I, I'm also a student of history. I worry about big transitions and changes. And, you know, you do look out the world and you think, man, there's a lot of stuff to be worried about right now. There's also some stuff to be excited about as well, I would say, um, to people that are listening. But you got Yeah, watch. you know, like I'm <laughs> optimistic too. And I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, because part of me is pessimistic because I know things will be tried. I mean, China, mm -hmm. we know, just tried this digital currency. It's not going over well. Of course, they can, they can just say too bad. We, we don't care <laughs> what you think we're going to do it anyway. Right. But, but what we're seeing from you know, the, the, this monetary experiment of the Fed, and I, and I don't mean just recently, I just mean in the last decades, the debt-based system, you know, creating this wealth gap is starting to open people's eyes. And through people like you and your company and other people out there that are trying to get the information is all we're doing is telling everyone, look, the system that created all of this wealth and prosperity is the same system that's going to destroy it all. And we don't know what the right way is. I don't think anyone has the right answer right now at all. And if anyone suggests that they do, I, I, I think they, they, they really, they don't. What we need is people to, to come together and say, look, this isn't working. And unfortunately that usually leads to revolutions and major changes, 
But perhaps the sooner we can open everyone's eyes to say, look, this isn't working. What can we do to change it to a system that is better? And how do we change this old system out and transition it into something better? And if enough people want that, it can be done in a very constructive and positive way. Does it mean we go to digital currencies or cryptos or anything? It doesn't mean any of that. It just right. means what we're doing now doesn't work. And it'll work for a while longer, but we need to start opening our eyes to the fact that we need something better and different. And I don't know what it is, but we need to start having that conversation before it leads to a global collapse and another big world war, because sadly in history, that's exactly what always happens. And what happens from that, I don't know, but that's the direction we're going in until everyone wakes up to realize that their disadvantage is the system, not so much them. I agree with you. I agree. Um, you know, I actually want to close on something. I'm not sure if you're going to find this optimistic, pessimistic, if you're going to be like, hey, Mike, where's your tinfoil hat? But have you seen these reports coming out uh, from the Pentagon about UFOs or UAPs, as they're calling them? Uh, not too much. No, I, I'll have to take a look into that. Oh, my God. All right. We got to talk offline about it. I am getting obsessed with this stuff. There's basically like, the TLDR is that there are these videos getting released from the Pentagon, videos taken by the Navy. And they're basically charting these UFOs. There's this unbelievable interview with, I'm not, I'm actually, I'm just gonna say I'm not a fan of CNN, but there's this great five minute clip from CNN that you should take a look at. It's like this Navy, you know, senior person from the Navy, an ex uh, Secretary of uh, Defense uh, person. And they're basically describing technology that's 100 to 1000 years advanced where, man, it is wild. Um, the reason I'm thinking about this is, I do like you sometimes worry about it sounds overdramatic. The great, by the way, if you look throughout history, the way inequality gets reset far more often than not is war. It's like the great resetter of income inequality. I know that sounds dramatic to say, if you look throughout history, it's just kind of a fact. And, you know, I, I wonder, I don't know, man, I don't know. I think it could actually weirdly, like if there were aliens, uh, it actually might be a weirdly unifying thing for people to realize that, you know what, man, at least we're all humans at the end of the day. We're descended from the same, like, you know, apes that, that everyone else is. So I don't know. Could be interesting. But uh, Steve, uh, I appreciate you humoring me, especially at the end here, going off about aliens. Sorry for that tangent, everyone. Uh, but if people want to find out more about you, the work you do, give us a little bit about your background. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, uh, the best way to find me is uh, on my website, stephenvanmeter.com. I'm uh, active on Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. I have a, a YouTube show. Uh, it's called The Macro Show, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We talk about macro, do a Sunday night chart show, and soon to be released, we're uh, going to have a, a momentum uh, report, which uh, uses some proprietary price and momentum signals to help people become better investors. So uh, that'll be free when we first launch it for a while uh, to, to let people kind of play with it. So uh, coming soon. So uh, easy to find. Just put my name into search engine and uh, you'll find me. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thanks, Steve. You've been super, super generous with your time. We'll uh, watch to do this again soon. Mike's always a pleasure.